Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Second half of the baseball season is underway. The trade deadline is right around the corner, and BetOnline is the place to stop for all of the baseball action the remainder of July. Head to their website or use your mobile device today to sign up. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is July 25th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Happy Monday, everybody. It is the last week of July coming up on our 1000th episode here on the Take It Easy podcast. Make sure to leave those five star reviews, those downloads. Check out the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast. Episode five is in the works. I am uh, wrote the script. I've started recording stuff. It is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I am so excited to share that final episode with you guys. Check out all the other four episodes, not just here on the Take It Easy podcast, but also on the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed. You guys know it by now. If you're li- Unless this is your first time joining the show. If this is your first time joining the show, great to hear from you. So uh, we've got a great Great podcast coming up today. I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I have been watching, listening to over the past few days when there haven't been sports, and I've been a little bit sick, and uh, I've had some time to myself. So we're going to talk about a couple of things related and non-related to uh, the movie world and the podcast documentary world, not just the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty, but another really good one and uh, a story I find equally interesting. We'll get to that in a second. It wasn't the greatest tease in the world. Uh, Even I want to scratch that a little bit, but either way, we'll get to that in a second. Where I want to begin today is Major League Baseball, and since we're going to talk Major League Baseball, let's start it off with our Take Me Out to the Ball Game 2022 Baseball Anthem.
Aha, yeah. That is a very fun electric guitar MLB take me out to the ball game song. Okay, so let's talk about baseball. This theoretically last year's rap anthem from Rob Stone with the Padres uh, theme song probably might have worked better for for this one because we are going to talk about the Padres a little bit here on the show. But it's trade deadline week in baseball next. Oh, Tuesday is the trade deadline. It's a weird day for the trade deadline next year. Trade deadline falls on a Tuesday, kind of strange. It's on uh, August 2nd, but yeah, Tuesday next week is the MLB trade deadline, and uh, there are two stories that are dominating the MLB trade deadline now. One of them we've kind of known about for a week. We've touched on it once or twice. It's Juan Soto. Second one is Shohei Otani. Uh, I joked the last time we talked about Juan Soto that, uh, you know, we talk about generational stars a lot in baseball. It's a very uniquely baseball thing because, like, last year, Vlad Guerrero Jr. was a generational star. And a year before that, it was Fernando Tatis. And before that, it was Aaron Judge. So, like, we have a lot of generational stars in baseball, and it kind of shifts every year. It just means there's really, really good baseball players. That's that's the best that I can say of what generational stars mean. But Juan Soto is is like maybe the greatest player to ever become available as a trade piece at the MLB trade deadline because he is only in his fourth year, I guess technically fifth year, but only in his fourth year in baseball if we're talking about service time. So a player who's in his fourth year and has already established himself as one of the five best players in baseball or 10 best players in baseball, you just don't see that that quickly usually in people's careers, combined with the fact that Juan Soto debuted at 19 years old. So if we're talking about like the list of players who debuted at 19, it's like Alex Rodriguez and I, I don't even know who would fall. Wander Franco last year debuted at 19, um, but Wander Franco signed a 13-year extension with the Rays. And Fernando Tatis was 20, but it's not 19. Like, a lot of people don't debut at 19 years old because usually in baseball, uh, when you get, you have to be uh, 18 years old or 17 out of high school to get drafted. And in the minor leagues, it usually takes three plus years, or at least let's say two years for the, the sake of this conversation. So the only way someone who's 19 could make it to baseball is drafted at 17 and making it through two years of minor league baseball, like going fast-tracked through the minor leagues. Where the Juan Soto case is different is something that's not, I mean, if baseball has its way, not going to exist after this year, which is you sign as a free agent. And Juan Soto signed as a free agent at 16 years old, I would think. I'm just doing math in my head. He's, at 16 years old, Juan Soto signed with the Washington Nationals as an international free agent. And that's something that's slowly aging out of the game. Like, in European soccer, they have uh, academies where people can get signed to play professionally at, like, 13, 14 years old. It might not be at like the biggest league ever, but like similar to the minor league system of baseball, you can sign at 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, if you're Luka Doncic, he was playing professionally in Europe up until he was like, 
or starting when he was 16 and in the Euro League, the second biggest league in all of sports, he was, uh, I think, 18 years old and won Euro League MVP or Finals MVP. Um, it would, you know, Luka Doncic. You could, that can only happen in a non-American system. Like in the American system, you get drafted at 18 years old. Um, this could exist also if we're talking about war, but specifically, you get you can't get drafted to Major League Baseball until you are 18 years old. But if you're signing internationally, you can sign as early as 16 or whenever you declare. So, like, there are there are loopholes for Juan Soto to start at 19. The reason that was the case is because Juan Soto was signed at 16 years old from the Dominican Republic. Alex Rodriguez uh, signed... Was Alex Rodriguez drafted? I think Alex Rodriguez was drafted, and he just fast-tracked through the minor leagues. But Alex Rodriguez hit free agency at 22, 23 years old and signed, like, the richest contract in the history of baseball. And after signing the richest contract, like, two times the next closest value, he was, like, 22, 23 years old. Which, all of that is the way I wanted to talk about Juan Soto, which is... Juan Soto is not only, within four years, one of the 10 best players in baseball, he's also 23 years old, and therefore he's now the largest trade chip to ever become available because the Washington Nationals owners are trying to sell the team, they have the worst record in baseball, they won a World Series in 2019, and since then it's just been... Just... I can't make enough fart noises just to tell how bad it's been in Washington ever since uh, they won that World Series. Like, they gave Steven Strasburg $140 million, and he's only started, like, 14 games in the three years since. They didn't sign Anthony Rendon, and that's somehow a worse contract than Steven Strasburg's. You know, Bryce Harper was already gone. Michael A. Taylor got traded from the Nationals to the Royals. They were starting, like, Starlin Marte and Josh Harrison. Last year at the deadline, they traded Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the the Los Angeles Dodgers and got nothing immediate in return. So it's like rough out here for Washington and their their ownership is trying to like purge the team and sell it and they offered Juan Soto a 15-year, $440 million contract. You probably know about that if you've heard anything about this saga and Juan Soto turned it down because, like, the average annual value is $30 million a year, which we'll talk about that more when we get to Shohei Otani. But we can also just touch on it here. So contracts that are longer term are usually beneficial on the front end to you and beneficial on the back end to your employer. So ESPN signs a television deal with uh, the ACC network through 2020 or 2036 already looking like a shit deal for the ACC network, but a better deal for ESPN. This is why those contracts always get backloaded. Um, so where like Russell Westbrook makes $47 million this year, it's intentionally backloading the contract because if you make the same amount every single year, that contract gets better for the team as revenues increase and salary caps, which doesn't exist in baseball, but there are luxury taxes in baseball. As those numbers increase, you are making less relative to the rest of the team. So like Juan Soto making $440 million is shocking value until you think about if Juan Soto plays great for 10 years, he can make $600 million on that contract. Like he would basically be signed until he's 38 with like opt-outs in between, but like he's essentially capped out on his playability. 
now that the flip side is you lock yourself into 440 million because that other dollar value isn't guaranteed in the future. And what I will point to with that is baseball teams have never been hesitant to throw around big money, like two and three times for big contracts. Like baseball teams will pay 34 year olds 30 plus million dollars that Justin Verlander just got like a 25 million dollar contract into his 40s like baseball teams have no issues paying old people money so Juan Soto would basically be locking in his earning potential until 38 years old obviously there'd be opt-outs in between but like essentially locking in his earning potential through 2000 for his entire career at 440 million dollars and it seems like a shockingly large amount, those values will always go up. I remember years and years ago where people were complaining about Joe Flacco making $20 million a year. The point I wanted to go to with Juan Soto is this. So that's all the background information and ramblings of Juan Soto. What I wanted to touch on with Juan Soto is if you are the San Diego Padres, which is my favorite team. And if you are the St. Louis Cardinals or the New York Yankees or any of the teams that are interested in the Juan Soto sweepstakes, and as Ken Rosenthal reported this weekend uh, with one MLB executive saying you would have to give up your entire farm system to get Juan Soto because the Nationals asking price is major leaguers with long-term control and top prospects. Uh, So players who are currently in the minor league system and former top prospects who are now in the major leagues. And the reason they want that is so that they can get all of your top prospects in exchange for Juan Soto. Not just the top ones currently in your farm system, also the ones that have just aged out of your farm system. The reason teams do this is because you're broadening your opportunities to get players in. You're broadening your opportunities to get star players because just because someone used to be a top prospect and now they are hitting 230 in the major leagues doesn't mean they won't get better. Uh, for people who follow Major League Baseball, Francisco Lindor got traded from the Cleveland Guardians to the New York Mets. And this a similar type of trade got done there where the, the Mets gave up two of their top minor league prospects and gave up two major league players who were both uh, either rookies or second years to the uh, to the um, Cleveland Guardians. And I'm trying to remember the name of the second guy because he was the big name in the trade of Francisco Lindor. But one of them, the secondary guy in the trade, was a second baseman named Andres Jimenez. And Andres Jimenez, when he first got to New York, or sorry, when he first got to Cleveland, was like the nine hitter on the team because he was in his second year in baseball. And he was a former top prospect that became a throw-in piece. And this is the weird thing about baseball is like you play three years in the minor leagues and take two years or three years in the majors before you actually start hitting your stride. The development process takes a lot longer in major league baseball. And that's why it's so interesting that when they made the trade, it was, uh, oh, here's the, the trade. It was Ahmed Rosario, Andres Jimenez, and two players who are top prospects in the Mets system. His name Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green. They were both top six prospects in the Mets system at the time. And what's interesting is everyone thought Ahmed, Ros- I mean, I listed his name first. Ahmed Rosario is the big piece going back in the trade. He's already in the major leagues. He's a, a leadoff hitter for the Mets. So now he's going to be a leadoff hitter for Cleveland. And Andres Jimenez was a rookie that was a former top prospect 
but for the first year of the trade felt like a throw-in piece. And this year, Andres Jimenez made the All-Star team, and after a couple of injury opt-outs, started in the All-Star game for the American League. It just took two, well, really a season and a half, but almost two full years of Major League repetitions for Jimenez to turn into a star. And Francisco Lindor is a great piece for the New York Mets. Like, I'm not arguing at all that... Francisco Lindor is not a great player at this point. Francisco Lindor has a 2.6 war this year. He's been one of the better players in baseball. They also got uh, Carlos Carrasco in that trade. Andres Jimenez himself has a higher wins above replacement this year than Francisco Lindor. I have their stats side by side here. Lindor is hitting 245 with 16 home runs. Jimenez is hitting 305 with 11 home runs. But here's the thing Jimenez only has like 200 at bats in the major leagues before this season. It just took him a long time to turn into a true leadoff hitter for the, the Cleveland Guardians. And so Cleveland wins that trade. Like Lindor was out the door. It doesn't mean the Mets lose. Cleveland wins that trade just by getting Andres Jimenez. They win. Like, that trade is a huge victory for Cleveland. It doesn't matter what happens after that with Ahmed Rosario. Actually, what is Ahmed Rosario's numbers? Ahmed Rosario... Okay, here's a funny part about this, too. Ahmed Rosario this year hitting four, uh, is hitting 500 with four homers. He's a contact hitter, though. So he's got a OPS plus of 745, which league average is 700 for people keeping track at home. And Francisco Lindor, who again, making $30 million for the Mets, has a 746 OPS. So this is perfect. Ahmed Rosario and Francisco Lindor have the same OPS. And they have the exact same OPS plus. Ahmed Rosario, who was traded in that trade to Cleveland, and Francisco Lindor are the same players this year. And Andres Jimenez is better than both of them. So both of those players end up going to Cleveland, and both of them emerge as... in Jimenez's case, starting in the All-Star game, and uh, in the case of Ahmed Rosario, Ahmed Rosario is as good as Francisco Lindor. They are literally putting up the same numbers. Rosario makes $1 million this year, and Lindor makes $30 million this year. That's how Cleveland finds value in that trade. They win the Lindor trade. It doesn't mean the Mets lose the Lindor trade. The Mets are still really good and have way more money to spend than Cleveland, I would call it a mutually beneficial relationship for both teams. So why am I bringing this up in relation to Juan Soto? It's smart of the Nationals to ask for players who are young and controllable in the majors and top prospects for down the road. You don't want just all prospects and you don't want all the young uh, young major leaguers. Although like it worked out in the case of the, the New York Mets and Cleveland Guardians trade, you can get both for Juan Soto. If he's the greatest trade chip to ever come available, you can get both for Juan Soto. And if you're a team like the Padres and the Dodgers and uh, the Yankees, my argument is if you're going to compete for a championship, you're going to have to replenish your farm system no matter what. You're going to have to do what the Astros do, which is just fart out top players every year. Like the Houston Astros lost Carlos Correa, lost George Springer, 
Uh, they lost, or, I mean, they signed Michael Brantley, but they lost Josh Reddick. They, they've lost all these players over the years. Uh, Garrett Cole leaves in free agency. Zach Granke is no longer a strong pitcher. And the 2019 team was built on Verlander and Cole and uh, Zach Granke being the three best pitchers in all of the American League. Cole's gone. Granke's gone. Verlander missed two full seasons with Tommy John, and now he's an all-star again this year at 41 years old. And they still have one of the best pitching staffs in baseball because they just bring up a Framber Valdez. They bring up a Jose Urquidy. Uh, they br- I forgot the name of the other guy, but they have another really good pitcher there. Lance McCullers has been a number one starter in past playoff appearances. If you're going to be the Astros and compete for World Series every year, you're going to have to keep finding and developing new players. So my argument for that is you should be totally fine giving up your entire top of your farm system for... Juan Soto because if you aren't going to be able to develop new prospects after those players there's no you're not going to compete anyways so you might as well be mediocre with Juan Soto than bad and not having Juan Soto that's my argument is you're going to have to find more of those players anyways when the Astros traded for Zach Greinke they gave up uh, Seth Beer who was a former first round pick uh, they gave up another former first-round pick whose name I'm forgetting now but plays for the Diamondbacks. Uh, it wasn't Paven Smith, but they gave up someone else who was a former big-time prospect for the Houston Astros. They gave up two former first-round picks to get Zach Greinke, and they still just kept farting out more players. I say farting out pejoratively. They just keep producing new top prospects to replace the players that leave. That's how you continue to stay young. That's how you continue to compete for championships. So I'd argue that any of those teams trade for Juan Soto and bet on your developing farm system. If I'm the Padres, I got no evidence to suggest the Padres are going to be able to find more prospects. But I still want them to have Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, and Manny Machado and still lose 81 games a year. And speaking of having star players and losing a lot of games, this brings us to the Anaheim Angels. Because the Anaheim Angels are apparently fielding calls for Shohei Otani ahead of the trade deadline, which is smart to do. Otani can leave in free agency after 2023, and the Angels have the worst record in baseball ever since like May 15th. Whenever they had first place in the in the American League West, they have the worst record in baseball since then. And every week you get to see SNL making jokes about how, I mean, if SNL cared about baseball, but you get to see every baseball comedian being like, Shohei Otani hits three home runs and throws 20 strikeouts while Mike Trout hits two home runs and steals eight bases as the Angels lose 10 to 5. Like you hear that all the time now if you're following baseball and more of you are following baseball than ever before because it is bleak out here if you really, really care about sports. So what's interesting about the Otani point is the Angels recognize Otani is worth, you know, $500 million, $600 million on a 10-year contract, like worth $50 million per year every single year for a decade. They recognize that and just, they're like, don't want to pay it. If the Angels pay Otani $45 million a year, they will have already committed more money into 2025 than the New York Yankees and the Angels haven't made the playoffs since 2014, which is like the fourth longest drought in all of baseball. Like, it's insane. 
that they'd be committing more money. Pat and the Yankees are the team. Remember that gave Cole a five-year, or, or sorry, an eight-year contract. They gave Stanton, or they traded for Stanton's ten-year contract. Like the Yankees are paying a lot of dudes for a long time, and the Angels would be paying more money into 2025 than the New York Yankees. So they're like, you know what? Let's see what we can get for Otani. Let's see what is out there. And and by the way, it's smart to do that. I will always say no player is untouchable because every player has a price. And if someone's willing to meet that price, you absolutely make the trade. You should listen for just in case you get an offer you can't refuse. As long as you don't talk yourself into a trade, but that's a whole psychology of sports. But I say good on you for at least listening to the offers. Write down your price. If so, Make it outlandishly high. If someone meets that price, take it. Because like the Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario trade, with, and it's, I know it's the Francisco Lindor trade, but I'm going to say it again. Cleveland, Ahmed Rosario has the exact same OPS and OPS Plus as Francisco Lindor this year, and he's not even the best player Cleveland got in that trade. He's not even the best player Cleveland got. Cleveland got two All-Stars for one All-Star. And two All-Stars that are making a combined $3 million. While Lindor, the one All-Star, is making $30 million a year for the next 10 seasons. Like, Cleveland got a steal in that trade. And this is what leads me to the point about Shohei Otani. Is the Angels, in an Otani trade, are reportedly asking for major league level players in exchange for Otani. If they're going to trade generational superstar Shohei Otani, they want immediate major league replacements. And I can only assume that this is coming from the general manager, Artie Moreno, because all of the numbers and all of the data suggest that this is a really, really bad idea. Because again, you would rather take the seven young players and bank on one of them turning into a star than trying to trade for the one established major leaguer. Because we've seen with Otani and Trout, the one established major leaguer making, I mean, Otani's not making a lot, but like Trout making a lot of money doesn't move the needle. The best, the only teams that win in major league baseball are the teams that have a combination of stars who are veterans and making a lot of money and young star players. The Dodgers are great because they have Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and Clayton Kershaw. They also have Walker Bueller making $2 million a year. They also have Cody Bellinger, who during their World Series run in 2017 was making $790,000. And I don't think he won MVP. I think he lost to to Yelich, but was basically MVP making $790,000. Max Muncie was making $2 million. You have to have that combination of young players, cheap and controllable, and then use the extra money to pay star veteran players. It's why, uh, you know, the Oakland A's or Tampa Bay Rays, who we talk about a lot, Tampa Bay is really, really good and smarter than everyone else at getting the young, cheap players. The reason that they can't get over the hump is no team that's outside of the top 10 in payroll in baseball has won the World Series in the last, like, 10 years. I think it's, like, one in the last 15 years has won a World Series outside the top 10 in payroll. It's because now everyone is smart. Everyone is smart. 
and everyone has access to data and analytics and has dudes with Harvard or, and Ivy League degrees um, working in their front offices. Everyone can numbers crunch and everyone can calculate data. Where the, and that's where the angels are so far behind everyone else is they're saying, we're going to go against the grain and we're going to try and do something different and trade for major leaguers. But trading for major league players for Shohei Otani doesn't fix the problem. That you know what you're banking on when you trade Shohei Otani is we can replenish that farm system so then we can have an Ahmed Rosario we can have a an Andres Jimenez come back in that trade we can have uh, like the 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 famous trade where the Padres got Ryan Ludwig well they gave up Corey Kluber in exchange now maybe you also get a guy who never makes a, a significant impact in the major leagues but as long as you get the one player who does you win. If you get two bonus points, if you can get two guys and both of them are only making $3 million a year like Cleveland, bonus points, you win again. Like you just keep getting hits on hits on hits with those trades. And so maybe it's not good enough to get you to the playoffs. What the Angels have right now isn't getting them to the playoffs. It's just really, really entertaining. And they spend a lot of money. It's why it's, I say it all the time. I can explain why the Angels don't make the playoffs. It doesn't mean I understand it. It doesn't make sense to me why the Angels can at least get close to the playoffs when they have all these generational talents, the payroll that they have, and I, at least a couple young players. They're really bad at developing their farm system, but the Angels are just really bad at developing, developing players over the last seven years. So maybe that's what they're banking on with trading for Shohei Otani or trading Otani p- potentially for major league caliber players is we want the, the established goods instead of the younger players. And I'd point to that's a problem with your developmental system because like every other team can at least not F it up so that players who are really talented within their organizations make it to baseball. The Miami Marlins are a joke and they have the best pitcher in baseball that was developed beginning with the Cardinals organization, came to them as a minor leaguer in the Marcelo Zuna trade. His name is Sandy Alcantara. He's so good. And the Marlins are a dumpster fire of a franchise. They've been that way through three different ownership groups. They still figured out how to get a top two pitcher in all of the national, like a Cy Young. They still effed around and got a Cy Young pitcher. The Angels effed around and got Mike Trout. Like, it, it's possible. Sometimes even all of the effing, sometimes you, you get diamonds in the rough. Sometimes even the Jets have Darrell Rivas. Like, It happens every now and then. It's so confounding that the Angels haven't gotten to that place, and you should bank on the fact that you can identify talent from other teams. Because the problem there is that your inability to identify talent. It's not that, and maybe this is accepted by Artie Moreno, and he's just confounded by how to fix it. I don't know exactly what the answer is. They've tried new general managers. They've tried new coaches. I'm sure they've tried new developmental staff. They spent a draft drafting only pitchers. Like they, they try so many different things to make it work, and it doesn't. And I have a really good feeling that the trading for Major League talent isn't going to work out for them. Because the, this is why, you know, baseball's got it down to a science now. And, and if they change the rules, maybe the science will change. But the science, and the, the I guess the, the science of front office suggests, you want to get the package of young players and prospects. 
because the young players and prospects will be cheap and controllable for a long period of time. And if just one of them hits, you win. I mentioned the Marcelo Zuna trade earlier, and the Marcelo Zuna trade was part of that uh, Miami Marlins teardown a few years ago where they like get, got rid of Yelich and Stanton and Ozuna, and uh, everyone was like, oh my god, this, these are all losses. Like they, The worst trade in the history of baseball was they got nothing for Christian Yelich. They, they got nothing in exchange for Christian Yelich. They got very little in exchange for Giancarlo Stanton. They, they got a couple pieces that are fine, but they got almost nothing for Giancarlo Stanton. And they got a haul for Marcelo Zuna. And it starts with Sandy Alcantara. Like, they, Sandy Alcantara was, like, one of the biggest pieces that they traded for. One of the other pieces the Miami Marlins got in that trade was a pitcher named uh, Zach Gallen. And they traded Zach Gallen to Arizona and got Jazz Chiseled. So they traded two years of Marcelo Zuna for two All-Stars. Jazz Chisholm, who is the starting second baseman for the National League, and Sandy Alcantara, who is going to probably win the Cy Young this year in Major League Baseball. Does it mean the Marlins are a playoff team? No, it doesn't. They're going to have to have other good things happen for them to make the playoffs. But they traded two years of Marcelo Zuna. Marcelo Zuna is a great player. He's not. <laughs> he made a couple all-star teams. He's not a like transcendent baseball player. They two, the St. Louis got two years of Marcelo Zuna and gave up the the Marlins in exchange for those two years of Ozuna got two All Stars making at the time a hundred thousand dollars or uh, sorry a million dollars and seven hundred thousand uh, dollars. Sandy Alcantara just signed a, a contract extension. He's still only making ten million dollars a year while being the Cy Young of baseball or the Cy Young winner of twenty twenty two. So that's a win for Miami, and that's how you win those types of trades. That's how we look back years from now and be like, oh my god, they absolutely messed that up. It's never going to be perfect. It's just the, there's been so many trades of stars now that we know the formula. The formula is get the young, controllable talent and the guys who everyone consensus believes are top prospects. And the Angels are deciding to go against the grain while the Nationals are deciding we're going to stick to that grain we're going to stick to that model. And there's a reason that nobody is willing to meet the Nationals price tag for Juan Soto. And there's a reason that I'm sure a lot of people will ask for a Shohei Otani trade of top players rather than prospects. And maybe they feel like the, the Angels don't know what they're doing and they can swindle them. Perhaps. I would argue the Nationals don't know what they're doing and you could swindle them. But at least the Nationals got a ton of top prospects for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And the, it seems like they're going to get an absolute haul for Juan Soto. Like, they're not oblivious to what Juan Soto is worth. If the Angels are going to go against the grain and try and trade for major league level players, that unless they get an all-star for Shohei Otani probably gonna backfire on them like there's no evidence to suggest that's going to work out for the angels is trading a generational superstar for even an all-star caliber player and major league level guys i think they're just looking at it like if if juan soto is worth uh these young controllable players and top prospects shohei otani must be worth bona fide major leaguers 
And that's not how the math works. And I'm sure that the Angels general manager knows that's the case. It's why I suspect that all of this information is coming on down from the Angels owner, Artie Moreno. Because otherwise, why would this one GM be doing the one thing that 20 years of data has suggested? Like 20 years of scientific data, not 20 years of gut feel. 20 years of scientific data has suggested is not an efficient way. By the way, it's also a way that's not even working for his team right now. Like Shohei Otani and Mike Trout are the best of the best major leaguers you can find. And because the rest of the team is atrocious, they have had the worst record in Major League Baseball since May. And what's been the consistent for years for the Angels? They have a really, really poor farm system. That's been the consistent point for the Angels over all these years. Their farm system has never been able, been able to develop young, controllable players. And so they they go get a Tommy LaStella, they go get a Zach Cozart, an Ian Kinsler, a Josh Hamilton. Now it's an Anthony Rendon. It was a Justin Upton at $28 million a year for a bunch of years. That's their supplement is spending a lot of money to make up for the fact that they can't draft and develop. And the easiest way to break that apart is if you're going to trade a generational star like Shohei Otani, you don't even have to draft or develop. Other teams have done that for you. You just get to take those players from other teams. And it it looks like the Angels aren't even going to do that in a possible Shohei Otani trade. And I'd say to them, power to you. You run the organization how you want to run it. All it's led to is, uh, or all what I think it's going to lead to is more continued heartache if you are a Los Angeles Angels fan. And hopefully sometime in the next nine days, Juan Soto and Shohei Otani get traded and it makes it the the biggest, most significant trades in the history of the Major League Baseball trade deadline from, again, the two teams that since May 15th, I think I have this right, May 15th, I think was the date, whenever the Angels were 27 and 21, whatever that date was. Since then, the, uh, the Angels and Washington with two guys who are considered generational stars, have the worst records in baseball. The Juan Soto, Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, those two teams have the worst records in baseball. And it looks like Washington's going about it the right way, of like, hey, we can't get this right, let's just try with the young, controllable players. And the Angels are looking at it what looks like to be the wrong way. Both of them are not well-run organizations, so like power to them. We'll see how it works out. But at least Washington won a World Series within the last three years, so I have more faith in them and their strategy than I do in the Angels' strategy, and that was reaffirmed by the reports that came out this week. All right, y'all wanted to throw it back to uh our old music from the radio show shout out to my man martez over at open talk radio 313 the flash that used to be our intro for the radio show i wanted to uh switch it up because this is our our kind of like movie segment that uh we do like maybe twice a year three times a year usually when it's a real down week or a down weekend, or a wired up, or whatever it is. Every, every, usually like once a month, I do either like a book review, or a movie review, or a podcast review. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got to chat with uh, the guys who made the Bolted podcast, which is uh, Rafi Cantor and Ben Stein. They're from San Diego. They talked about the Chargers leaving. Uh, we talked to Brian King. He's an author of a really good book on psychology. 
we reviewed Space Jam A New Legacy about this time last year. I think it was like July 18th of 2021. So, you know, every now and then we we get an author or a, a podcast host or someone to come on the show, or I just talk about a book, a movie, a, a something like that. A book, movie, music. We've reviewed Migos albums. We reviewed Drake albums. We reviewed Silk Sonic albums. So yeah, usually like once a month, I find something to review and uh, talk about on this podcast. I got two things I want to talk about uh, for this fun little segment that we toss in at the end on a Monday. First one, podcast series I finally got around to listening to. Uh, Zach Kiefin, I think his name is, or Kiefer. Um, he made a, I think Zach Kiefer, now that I think about it, he made a podcast for The Athletic about Andrew Luck. And uh, if you may or may not remember, during the deep, dark days of the pandemic, like right after the Super Bowl between Tampa and Kansas City, I spent like four hours making a bit where we went on a Borat-style journey to find Andrew Luck and uh, interview Andrew Luck for the first time, which involved me just piecing together like audio clips from old Andrew Luck interviews and stuff like that. I'm so fascinated by the Andrew Luck story. Like Andrew Luck retired right when we were first beginning the podcast. It was the first real news story that gave me confidence in speaking. It was like a major, major headline for a week at a time. And it was great. It was right before I went to college and now I've graduated college. And Andrew Luck's only made two public public appearances in the time since we saw him at a high school in Colorado in September and we saw him at the college football playoff because Andrew Luck was getting inducted into the college football hall of fame and the championship game was in Indianapolis where Andrew Luck still lives to this day. So Andrew Luck is like NFL Bigfoot. That's what they call it in the show. It's really good. It's six parts. I skipped the Peyton Manning one. So it's really like five parts and it's so good. It'll take like four hours of your time. So basically like a documentary. It's so well done. It's so well reported. I loved hearing the stories about Andrew Luck's darkness. And I know that's like grief eater type shit, but I thought it was so, so good. And I, I, I realize now that I'm attracted to like the notoriously private stars. I love Andrew Luck. I love uh, it, uh, Kawhi Leonard. We just did a story about Greg Popovich, who lives this notoriously private life. I think it's the life that I aspire to is being a gigantic star and being uh, being away from the stardom and like having this private life where you also work in something that gives you like creative joy. Uh, so I think I'm fascinated by those people. We're talking about Andrew Luck was miserable, angry at himself and everyone else. Uh, during that rehab, he went to a really dark place. And for all of Andrew Luck's like weirdness and greatness and just being like the top 1% of 1% when it comes to intellect and not caring what other people think about him, being like perfect for the quarterback position and greatest quarterback prospect in 30 years with the mental acumen of great leadership like for all of that Andrew Luck never was in touch with his emotions and so when he was going through essentially three years of injury rehab because 2015 he played through injury 2016 he played through a torn shoulder missed all of 2017 took him the entire 2018 offseason to get right it was basically 36 full months of Andrew Luck injury rehab, injury rehab, play through pain, injury rehab, like 36 months of that shit for Andrew Luck. And he basically walked out of that like, I will never go back to that place again. 
And then when he injured his ankle in training camp 2019, he's like, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. I'd just rather retire. I'm not going back to that dark place. I'd rather be happy, pain-free. I've been, I've been, I've seen the darkness. I've seen the emotional turmoil. I'm not going back to that place. So I would encourage everyone to listen to it. It's on the Athletic NFL Shows podcast feed. You have to scroll down a little bit to find it. It's really, really good. I wanted to be the one who wrote the book or the documentary on Andrew Luck in 10 years. This guy was uh, actually covering the Colts for the Andrew Luck saga, so I think he's probably more equipped to tell the story than I. It's so good, and uh, you guys should absolutely check that out. The other thing I wanted to talk about is Nope. It is the Jordan Peele film, and again, first thing I want to say off the bat, I am a, not a movie expert. When, when we did the podcast with Cam, the DSD pod, we used to play a, a game of Kyle Doesn't Know Movies. I am not a movie expert. When we did a Space Jam review, I just talked about the movie and was like, the movie, the plot is poorly constructed, but it put a smile on my face the entire time, so I'm going to give it 10 out of 10, because I watch movies the way... Like people in the 1970s watch sports, which is crack open a cold one and watch a good game after work. I'm like, I just want to watch movies that have really cool subplots, underlying metaphors, great dialogue, and something that's going to entertain. I watch movies for like sports. When, when we do this thing, sports is a little bit of a job more for me. And I love that it's the case. Like some people are like your enjoyment of sports gets tainted because it becomes a job. I'm like, I love that sports are a job. I want nothing more in life than for sports to be my job. And this is like a job. Like I consume sports like a job. I'm constantly looking for content. I'm constantly looking for storylines to talk about. I'm writing, I'm crafting, making documentaries. It, it triggers my creative passions around sports. So yeah, sports are very much a job. Movies are entertainment for me. And it's not that sports aren't entertaining. I just consume it through the lens of working in sports and working around sports, covering sports. I just watch movies, so I'm not going to do, like, in-depth movie analysis here. I just, I simply cannot do it. I do not watch movies or TV. But I want to talk about Nope, because Nope is really, really good. And this happened a couple weeks ago with uh, Elvis. I watched the, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I didn't really know how to talk about it without talking about the actual, like, plot line of the movie which is stupid to do on a podcast instead of spending 15 minutes listening to me go drive down to your local movie theater and actually watch the movie then talk about it afterwards except you can't talk to me because it's a podcast and it kind of works one way I didn't know how to talk about Elvis so I'm just like oh but it's a really good movie you should really enjoy it I know how I can talk about Nope because the reason I wanted to go to the theaters on the first weekend and watch Nope is because I love the psychological thrillers and there, there are some horror elements to it, but it's more psychological thriller. There, there are a couple points where Jordan Peele layers in like horror aspects to it. It's not like, um, I don't know if any of you have seen Us, which is the, the other Jordan Peele the horror genre movie um, that came out in like 2019, I think. But Us is very much more of like a horror than it is a psychological thriller. Or um, It, if any of you have seen It, the, 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 the It movie that came out semi-recently, that's psychological thriller. 
with some horror aspects to it. Like there's blood gore. Uh, Pennywise kills a couple children on camera. Like there's some gory stuff to it, but it's, it's not like a following the, um, it's not following the traditional, like, uh, what God, like slasher movies, like Halloween kills or scream or ones like that. It's not following the traditional, like horror slasher type of thing. This is more psychological thriller than it is um uh what's the other movie uh uncut gems by adam sandler like like nope is closer to uncut gems than it is to like a true horror movie it's like psychological thrilling you're on the seat of your pants and you're gonna be scared a couple times so don't i don't like horror but i kind of knew that this wasn't going to be horror so this there's one point that's really horrific but it's again there there are horror scenes it's more psychological thriller um and the reason i wanted to watch this so bad is because i saw a couple years ago judas and the black messiah which had daniel kalua and i love daniel kalua but he doesn't do a lot of stuff and um that was technically a spike lee joint but it was also had uh jordan peele as an executive producer on the movie and uh, you know, I should probably watch Get Out now because that's the original one. For people who don't know that story, like, um, basically Jordan Peele got his directorial debut with Get Out when he left Key and Peele, and he, like, bet on himself in getting to be a director of a horror movie, and he's, like, tackling race through horror genre and psychological thriller. He's, like, tackling issues of race, and I think that's so cool as someone who loves how sports are this metaphor for society. Jordan Peele's using movies and the psychological thriller genre to tell stories about race. And that I think that's super fucking awesome. Part, part of my language. I think it's really awesome. I mean, I can say F, but I try and bleep it out on this podcast. But that, I just think that's super awesome. And I think that Judas and the Black Messiah, which is not in the, the horror genre or psychological thriller, it's more of a drama than anything else that movie was really really good and it, it you know kind of pushed me to the next point of wanting to pay twelve dollars to go to a movie for the first time in god knows how long i get i've been to movies but not like first weekend hat like i went to elvis i saw top gun but like one where the first weekend i'm like i want to go watch this movie box office first weekend uh, and so I went to watch it and it's a really, really good movie. Daniel Kaluuya, Jordan Peele for, I was talking about the story before. Um, if you don't know the story, like get out was the original version of this story. And so Daniel Kaluuya gets his, uh, his debut as a leading actor and Jordan Peele gets his debut as a director and, the movie ends up being like a 98% score on Rotten Tomatoes and just this like cult classic movie that is it made it was made in like 2016 2017 and it's just this um, apparently amazing movie i've never watched it but ends up like springboarding daniel kalua's career springboarding jordan peele's career those two are now kind of linked at the hip when we kind of talk about each other so you know i thought that was a uh, super duper interesting and then they get to do another movie together with kiki palmer and uh i forgot the name of the guy who got his uh his big uh his big debut as a supporting actor i forgot what the guy's name is now uh it is oh brandon perea perea yeah brandon perea that's what it is uh he got his first chance as like the third lead in the movie and so i thought it was really really cool 
Um, but I'm not going to talk about the plot to it because what's the point of talking about the plot to a movie on the first weekend? But what I can talk about is just the larger, broader picture. So this movie starts out with basically the way I kind of interpret it. I'm not going to do like psychological breakdown or just reciting the plot, but there's two, three points that I wanted to talk about with this. One is that I imagine this story begins by them sitting down and like working from back to front which happens when you're like writing scripts and writing stories. I know that happened with the Spurs Dynasty documentary I made is like, I know how I want to end. How do I get there from the start? How do I tell a four hour story when I know what the last hour is going to be? So basically what they sat down with this one is work from the back of, hey, this movie is how would you go about catching an extraterrestrial predator on camera? That's basically what they start this movie out with. How would you go about catching an extraterrestrial with intelligence on camera? And from there, they're like, well, the extra, well, you would need a camera with technology. Well, the extraterrestrial shuts down electricity. It has like an electrical block. Okay, well, then you would need a camera that doesn't have electricity. It's like, okay, then you would need, well, none of your cars work. Nothing like that's going to work to be able to catch a video. So you can't like do weather chasing. Okay, you need horses. Okay, from there, you're living on a ranch. And from there, you kind of build out a story. And one of the second point I want to talk about is one of the interesting storylines that they pick on here, which is part of like narratives about race in all of these stories. They build out this story of Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer's characters who are brother and sister who are living on a ranch and they're like Hollywood, um, well, they call themselves Hollywood Haywood, but they're basically Hollywood, they bring horses in for Hollywood pictures because the backstory they develop is that the first motion picture, which it's debated what the first motion picture is, but the one they're choosing here is the first motion picture involved a horse with a black jockey and the black jockey's family, you know, five generations, six generations later are living on a horse ranch and like barely scraping by when it's like one of the most famous photos in the history of, or one of the most famous images in the history of mankind is the first ever motion picture. And in reality, no one knows who the jockey, who the black jockey was in that motion picture and they show it at the very beginning of the film and they use it in the middle a couple times. But that famous video, they don't know who the jockey was. It was just someone who was working at the stables in the 1800s. And so what they build out after that is this story arc of how his family is basically just barely scraping by, even though you would think like the person who filmed it is one of the most famous people ever and worth billions of dollars because they invented the motion picture camera and trying to chase their five minutes of fame and having a name written in history is like these people recorded the first ever motion picture and the horse's name is really famous, but no one knows who the jockey is. And because no one knows who the jockey is, Jordan Peele takes the liberties of building out this story of his future generations just trying to survive and now going under. And they're same way in the same kind of cycle from a hundred years ago as you have them trying to capture photography. Just like like a modern version of chasing the photography. Uh, or capturing the first motion picture, 
they're trying to catch an extraterrestrial on camera. And it's a freaking awesome metaphor, 150 years apart from the first motion picture to, I mean, this was technically made like set in the mid 2000s, but you know, from when the movie's made, uh, you know, we're talking about a hundred years. Uh, they have flip phones in this, which is kind of the easier way of like, well, couldn't you have just recorded it on your iPhone? Well, they all have flip phones in this movie because it's set in like 2004, 2005. And they have like Fry's Electronics, which is no longer in business. But like they're trying to set it up in a pre-iPhone age. But basically you're talking about 110, 120 years apart. You have people trying to find motion picture cameras and capture this thing on a camera when the when there's no when you take away the technology from the last hundred years because this alien ship can kill your technology how do you catch a photo and it's basically the exact it's a metaphor for the first ever motion picture pursued like the, the first ever motion picture video with the black jockey and now his descendants are once again trying the exact same thing. And it's a really cool metaphor. And I think you're really going to enjoy the psychological thriller if you go and see Nope. Would recommend. I uh, was going to say 10 out of 10. Would recommend 8.5 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. But I also judge these things like dunk contests. So nothing's really, I mean, unless it's really, really bad, nothing's ever going to be below a 6 for me. So let's say 9 out of 10. Nine, if you can do, let's say 9.3, <laughs> you score a, score a, um, score a 44 on the dunk. No, that's not good enough. Let's say you scored a 48 out of 50 on your dunk. It's not quite a perfect dunk, but it's a 48 out of 50 dunk. Instead of doing like 10 stars or five stars, let's do dunk contest scores. 48 point dunk is what this, uh, is what this movie comes out for me. But again, I do dunk contests cause nothing's ever going to be below a 35, even a missed dunk is worth 35. So I would go watch this. 48 out of 50 dunk contest score for Nope. And there's a great metaphor about the first black jockey and black equity. And yeah, it's really good. You should check it out. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up, sometimes on Sundays, not recently on Sundays. There's just not a lot of sports going on. So, Check us out Monday through Friday. Great host of guests. Follow the Spurs Dynasty documentary is going to wrap up on Wednesday this week. You can check out all five episodes on its personal feed. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>